Well, hello there, friends, and welcome to Rewoke, Rewriting Our Kids Education Podcast. My name is Michelle Person, and we are on a journey. We are rethinking, re-examining, and re-educating ourselves and our children. As many of you know, I spent many years as a principal in elementary schools before making the transition into running my own school, which is what I'm doing currently. One of the hardest aspects of my job as a principal was discipline. Conventional logic will tell you that when a student breaks a rule, there should be a consequence. And if a student continually breaks a rule, there should be a more harsh consequence. A very simple subject on the surface, but I can guarantee you that in education, there is tons of gray in this particular topic. The gray here is that the data tells us that black and brown students, as well as students with disabilities, are disproportionately handed or given more harsh consequences than their white peers. And if you are constantly on the receiving end of those harsh consequences, eventually you give up and may quit school altogether. This phenomenon has been called the school to prison pipeline. And though many doubt it, I can tell you that it is very real. My guest today, Leonard Webb, has spent the last 14 years working in the federal prison system as a counselor, focused on keeping men from coming back to prison and others from ending up there in the first place. Angela Davis, a political activist and a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, said that when children attend schools that place a greater value on discipline and security than on knowledge and intellectual development, they are attending a prep school for prison. Are we being intentional and purposeful about the types of environments we are cultivating for our children during their learning? Environments that promote critical thinking, freedom of expression, and true scholarly thought? Or are we creating the types of environments that are the easiest for us to control and thereby require a strict regimen of rules and consequences? And oh yeah, are you woke? back, I was the principal at the most ethnically diverse school I had ever encountered. It was a true melting pot with Black, Hispanic, and white students all finding their way into the principal's office at one time or another. I had a young teacher there that was struggling with classroom management, and I had a pretty good relationship with my middle schoolers. We had regular town hall meetings about the good, the bad, and the ugly going on in the building, and we had developed certain non-negotiables, cursing at teachers, disrupting class, etc. We talked about why those non-negotiables were uh, important and what would happen if a student came to my office with a referral and one of those non-negotiables was written on it. There would be an automatic consequence, no discussion, because we had talked about why those non-negotiables had to exist. Well, this particular teacher kept sending me one student um, and on his referral would always be one of these non-negotiables. So he would always get a consequence. And the consequences by nature were supposed to escalate as he got repeated offenses. It came time for this teacher to be evaluated. I went into her room to do her observation. I go in the back of the class and I'm watching. The student happens to be in this class. Now, did this student clearly violate several of the agreed upon rules? Yes. Was it egregious? No. Were there three other students in the classroom who were doing the exact same thing as him? and did not receive a consequence? Yes, yes there were. And two of the three students who were doing the exact same thing as him were white. 
there was a lot of coaching at that point with this particular teacher. And I had to shift how I handled referrals that came into my office after that, because even though it made more work for me, it needed to be done because the current system, the way that I had set up, clearly was allowing for certain groups of students to be targeted over others. I'm just one principal in one school, in one city, in one state. How many other students in schools and cities across the country are being disproportionately affected by school policies similar to the one that I had at my school? How do we change that? And what are the long-term implications if we don't? That is what our guest, Leonard Webb, is here to talk to us about today. Hi, Leonard. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Hello. Thanks for having me. No problem. Before we dive into this very important topic of uh, the school to prison pipeline, what is it? How did it begin? What can we do to, to affect some major change in it? Can you tell our listeners um, a little bit more about your background and how you came to do this very important work? Mm -hmm. Well, I grew up in New York, um, but I'll skip all the way to when I started in law enforcement in 1990 as a police officer. I didn't enjoy being a police officer. So, and I made a career switch into corrections in which I was actually doing some of the things that I had dreamed about doing, helping people get better. I was a counselor in the federal prison system and it started out as counseling all groups of men in the prison system. And my job was basically to make sure that they were staying connected with family, that basically they were being good prisoners was my job. Um, I enjoyed watching guys grow and develop and a lot of them getting out and not coming back. About 10 years in, I was able to be a part of a program that was for young offenders, which was defined as uh, men 18 to 30 with long sentences. And the long sentences was defined by over five years. That was the beginning of me really starting to take deep dives into guys' lives and seeing what happened. And, and what I started finding out was there was obstacles, adversity in schools as early as kindergarten. I kept on that and I eventually went to a program that was a drug program that was dealing with a lot of guys getting ready to release. And the same issues were coming up. They didn't have a GED before they released. They didn't have many job skills. So rather than put all my focus on just the addictions part of it, I put a lot of my focus on the life part of it. And <clears throat> I started seeing a lot of differences it made. Um, the recidivism rate for guys in my group was less than 40%. Mm. And I figured I was onto something. And it just so happens a guy's mom called me. She thanked me for working with him. She said she sees the change. And I said, what's his name? She told me his name. I said, ma'am, he's been gone for like five years and she was like she was like i know that's what i'm calling you he's never been gone <laughs> for more than a year <laughs> you know my entire life since he was 13 years old he, he's been locked up every year for a period of time he's never been out of prison but before she left me on the call she said i appreciate what you did for my son but wouldn't it be better if you kept young people out of prison rather than helping them stay out of prison once again and that hit me hard because i've always worked with kids since 1988 whether it was coach whether it was you know youth programs or whatever it was speaking in schools i had always worked with kids but i never really dove into it and it just so happened right after that call i i read a quote from desmond tutu that said sometimes we got to stop 
pulling people out of the river and figure out while they're falling in. And then I just took a step back and I said, okay, God, I got you. <laughs> I hear you. So like a, yeah. a, basically a, a, a series of events that you kind of didn't have any, you were, you weren't, you were just on the path. You were on the path and you know, uh, this happened and led you to this part of the path. The revelation led you here. Then a phone call led you here. And then a quote led you to the very important work that you're doing today. So you went from essentially to paraphrase working from to fix, trying to fix once they got in to being um, uh, an advocate to trying to make sure they never enter. So that, I think that's, and, and that's the, 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 the basic shift that we're, that the mind shift that we need to have as a country is like, let's, let's stop. Let's try to look at why they are entering and what issues are causing them to enter. Not let's not, we can still give them help while they're there. But let's also make sure that we're, you know, making sure that they have opportunities to not get there in the first place. And I think that a, a, a term which leads us today into our conversation that is coined or has been, you know, that you might see peppered today in society. It's almost becoming I hate when things become catchphrases. I hate when um, when the media starts using phrases. Um, I know funny um, in, in education. I would, teachers and administrators alike are so tired of the word rigorous. Like it, when you when you start talking about rigorous instruction and you start talking about standards based this and everybody, we start rolling our eyes because it becomes a catchphrase. And so a catchphrase that I know or, or a, a phrase that seems to be used a lot these days is the school to prison pipeline. Um, and th people talk about it like they understand it. But then I think when you really break it down, they don't understand it. And so I want you who, as now this has been the shift of your work, keeping kids out of this pipeline that, that and a lot of people will argue doesn't exist, but I think the data and the facts show that it does in fact exist. Um, and so I want you to tell us what is the present to school pipeline, school to present pipeline as you understand it. And what would you love for parents to understand about this pipeline? I love that you started it off with, with that because it sounds like a metaphor and it's really not. I've reversed engineered it. I've had the fortunate opportunity from my experience, which many people don't have to reverse engineer what happened um, starting in the prison system. But what it is, is a set of policies and procedures and the way we do things that make it more likely for kids to enter the prison system rather than graduate from school. And my, my belief is it all started in the 90s. It, it was probably around before then, but <clears throat> my experience is from the 90s in which there was the crime bill that came out as a result of mass shootings, which we now see. But in the 90s, it was really something new. So the mass shootings came and the crime bill had made a portion of it about the school system and these zero tolerance policies, and how do we make schools safer? And one of the things was, let's put police in schools, let's have zero tolerance policies. But eventually that led to these zero tolerance policies, not just being for guns and drugs, but to being, you're disruptive in class, you need to go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you threw a pencil, you need to go. And it wasn't just about high schools, it filtered down into the elementary schools where kids were being suspended as young as four years old. Mm -hmm. And what started to happen was the mass incarceration even got greater from the early 90s 
to into the 2000s as a result of this pipeline of kids that were getting expelled. And if you're not in school, you're not learning. And <clears throat> what are you learning when you're not in school? You're learning things that you probably shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. And without support systems in place, these kids are in that pipeline that leads them behaviors and, and, and things that they're getting punished in school for right into the printed prison system. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who are not aware, um, the, the zero tolerance policies that, that Mr. Webb is speaking about are, are things like, you know, you can, you, you know, um, if somebody, there are certain issues that you don't talk about. If a kid does it, it's, it's almost like the judge, the, 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 it's almost exactly like the, um, the, the, um, the prison system in, in the, in the effect of mandatory minimums. Meaning if, you know, if you do this offense as an adult, um, if it falls under whatever uh, rule or uh, code or whatever, whatever it is, um, if you do those, um, do that thing as an adult, the judge really has no discretion, you know, in terms of like how to sentence you, because the law says that if you do this, I must do this. Um, and as a principal, it is very much like that. Um, you know, there has been situations where, you know, we have a, a zero weapons policy. So, you know, a kid brings a weapon, a kid brings drugs, a kid brings, you know, whatever you have, whatever have you. And it is a zero tolerance. I must do this because the school district and the school board have said that we are zero tolerance. And um, and this is how we handle in every situation, whether you be in a courtroom or the classroom, there is a lot of gray. And there have been situations and times where I have had to give a consequence because of a policy without being able to take into account the gray. Um, and, and then when you really dig into the numbers, um, I think that what you will find is that gray is what disproportionately um, affects black, brown, and students with disabilities. Um, and so if you could, Leonard, like, can you, so we have, we have these policies, we have these zero tolerance policies, um, and we have these issues where, um, we are giving out these harsh sentences. Um, and so I I guess my question is, do you see the same thing that I've experienced, which is the, it's one thing. So in in theory, you would, um, apply these, these zero tolerance policies across the board and they should be colorblind and it wouldn't matter whether or not the kid is white or pink or purple out or purple. But what seems to happen is as soon as you begin implementing these policies, the kids who are most affected by these policies are black, brown, and students with disabilities. Um, so my question is, why do you think that is? Um, and what can you, what, what in your experience, how can we address that? That gray area is only for the ones that are reported. And that's one of the big problems. If somebody looks like me and I have a connection with them, then I catch them with a vape, which is one of those zero tolerance or even a weapon. Then it's up to my discretion whether I report it or not. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons black and brown with disabilities are getting reported more. So they're getting hit by the zero tolerance policies more. And what you'll find in the data is that Less than 20% are guns and violence and drugs. Mm-hmm. Most of it <clears throat> for black and brown youth is what we call discretionary offenses. And that is being disruptive. What does that mean? 
being disrespectful. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. And for people that don't have your cultural background or don't have any type of cultural training and how things look in other cultures, they may take some things as immediate disrespect. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gray area, I can give you a great example of, of a principal told me of an incident in Pittsburgh he was trying to work with that a second grader had brought a knife to school and she walked to school every day. Well, on her way to school, kids were taking her money. So she decided, you know, you're not going to take my money anymore. Mm-hmm. And she brought a knife to school and they found it. And she, the thing that this principal did was, it was very simple. Why do you have a knife? Just the question why. And she told him that story. You know, I'm getting harassed. I'm getting bullied. My lunch money's getting taken. My shoes are getting taken. I'm tired of it. So this principal, instead of expelling her, he decided we're going to find a way for you to get to a bus that can bring you to school so you don't have to go through that. And that's what the gray areas don't miss is the why. And I think it's being portrayed as you have these kids that are fighting and doing all these things when that's not really what's happening. What's really happening is that these discretionary offenses are now being turned into these zero tolerance policies. You disrespect someone. uh, You're disobedient. Those are the things that black and brown youth and Children with disabilities are getting hit for it. They're not getting hit for bringing knives to school. The data will show that the their white counterparts are the ones getting mostly suspended for those offenses. It's not the black and brown youth that are mostly getting suspended for those offenses. Even though nationally, black and brown youth are getting suspended at rates three to times higher than white counterparts for the exact same thing. And I think what people need to be aware of, especially parents, is that it affects all kids, not just it disproportionately affects black and brown children with disabilities, but you're one bad teacher's day away from being caught in that system. Mm -hmm. You're one bad moment of your child for your kid to be caught in that system. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to know because once it happens and you miss school, once a kid is suspended by the eighth grade at least one time, they're 70% more likely not to graduate high school. So it's every parent's responsibility to know. And I was one of those students that got suspended in the seventh grade. And luckily, the, the person I got suspended fighting with never graduated high school. I was one I was one of the thirty thirty percent that did. But I even saw it when I look back in at my school where it existed and how different the punishments were being delved out between black and brown and children with disabilities and their white counterparts. It's so funny that you brought up that example of um students it being it not being about the fighting and the violence is the reason that they're getting suspensions. It's the disrespect, it's the disruptiveness. Um and before you came on, I I literally in my introduction explained a story um about a teacher that I worked with um who I was trying to support because they were a first year teacher 
and um or newer to the to the I think she was in her second or third year still a very newbie um and um we were trying to um help her gain some classroom management skills and I was trying to coach her and I had had I, I had a great rapport um with my middle schoolers at this particular location I'm pretty much saying this the story all over again because you didn't hear it um but um essentially what happened was I, I came up with my middle schoolers about you know hey um, you know, we had town hall meetings every week and I said, like, like there are things that you guys are doing that you don't understand that are disruptive. We have too many kids in our classes. When you do this, this can't happen. And, you know, build that rapport. Like, so when you do this, I have to do this because my responsibility is to the other 25 kids in the class. I need you to understand it. It's not personal. It's what it is. Had a whole, so like, and they, they understood like, if you do this and it says it's on a referral, this person's going to do this. They would come down. There was one teacher and there's one boy in particular. He would come down. He would have the thing on the referral. I'd be like, did you do this? And he'd be like, yeah, but. And I'm like, well, there is no yeah, but. We had the conversation. I explained it. Blah, 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 blah. I had to go do her, um, I had to go do her, um, her evaluation. And I'm in her classroom and I'm watching. That particular boy was in there. And so were about three other people. And they were also, and two of them were white one was black and him and I'm watching the other students do exactly what he was doing but there she's the way in which she's responding to them the way in which she's talking to them the way in which she's de-escalating them is 100% different than the way she was de-escalating and dealing with this one in particular boy so what that did for me was I had to go revamp my entire thinking process and it took more time for me because yes there are still issues where um where where disrespect and disruptiveness is an issue and you cannot allow one child to run an entire classroom when there's one teacher and 30 kids um you know and 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 a, a kid is, is 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 screaming out or throwing pencils or you know whatever because that's there's a whole there, there's a lot of gray there because urban education is 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 fraught with that um but also what i what i learned from that was Instead of, I had to do for every referral moving forward that came through, I had to do deep investigation, meaning I had to talk to that student. I had to talk to, the, I had to pull kids out and talk to the teacher and, and talk to the other kids who were there. I had to actually call the teacher and be like, okay, tell me exactly what happened now. And then I, it, because it was without that level and what, what, what ended up happening was, and then I had to give that teacher extra coaching um, because what, what ends up happening is there was clearly a cultural divide between this teacher and the student. Um, they were not able to bridge it on their own because the child is 13 years old and the teacher is, you know, a grown woman who's, who is taking everything that this child is saying as, you know, disrespectful. Um, and there's no relationship. So there was a lot of work that had to be done to be able to try to get this one particular child out of the system that was escalating and going to eventually cause him to be suspended and or moved and or, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, so it is that, I mean, that I, I, it was very timely that you said that because that was exactly my own personal experience. Um, it happened repeatedly. Um, and so, go ahead. It's the assumptions that create all the tension in the relationships. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest assumption, when I left the prison system, after 27 years to get into the educational system, the first place they wanted to put me was an alternative school to be a long-term sub in the alternative school. And why would that be? Because you want your alternative school to function like a prison. So you want somebody that's a prison expert to make them compliant. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I think what I found when I went first went into the educational system was that the idea was 
to treat every student a certain way. And my thinking, even when I was in the prison system counseling grown men, is that each person deserves to be talked to, addressed in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I think we pull everybody together. Well, this works for, you know, 90% of the class. Why isn't it working for the 10%? Well, 10% needs something different. Uh, needs to be engaged differently. One of the biggest things that happened for me when I was in the prison system was instead of calling the guys inmate or, you know, common convict and all that kind of stuff. I never really got into that, but, or what's your number, inmate number and things like that. I started calling them Mr. And that's when my relationships began getting deeper mm-hmm. with them and they've began feeling comfortable with me. And it's the same thing with children is that if I go at each child, my first job when I substitute, substituted, I walked into the classroom and all the black kids were like, oh my God, there's a black man teaching. <laughs> and <clears throat> their reaction to me was to run up, give me a hug, give me a high five. And that made a lot of white teachers uncomfortable because they didn't have that relationship. Why doesn't this kid do this with me? I've been with them all year and they don't do this with me. And rather than be offended, understand that it's, it's something cultural. That This is the first time you know, some of these fifth graders have ever seen a black man teacher and ever known that a black man could be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And when we dive into those assumptions, and I had, and that reminds me of a recent story that I want to tell you, is that I'm working in a high school now as part of the guidance team. And there was a girl, a young black girl, and she was having some difficulties and some struggles. And I built a relationship with her. She came into my office and I always have candy and snacks. And she would grab, you know, like five snacks and a handful of candy. And I was like, you know, it's cool. You don't have to do that. I'm going to be here. And we developed a great relationship. She stopped by and see me. One of the teachers approached me and said, you know, she's playing. I was like, playing? (laughs) And so I had to tell her and to explain to her. I created a safe space for her. Mm-hmm. whatever issues you're having with her. She doesn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I let the teacher know. I said, you know, she comes in here, she grabs candy, but did you know she left $2 for me that I gave mm-hmm. back to her? But she told me, she said, Mr. Webb, I come in here and I take your candy and I take your food and you don't ever get anything back. I just wanted to give you something back. And I told this teacher, she learned that from somewhere. I'm probably a life ever gave her something and didn't want anything in return. Mm-hmm. Anytime she got something from school is because she sat still. She did this. She did that. No, no adult in the building has ever given her something just out of genuineness. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't understand that. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the problems. We're not building relationships with students so that we can understand why these things are happening. Yeah, I are so important. And I, I mean, I there are so many stories. We could sit and talk for hours. I had, yes, yes, had, two, I had two gentlemen teachers um, about the same age, um, both both white male teachers. One of one teacher had absolutely no problems at all classroom management. One 
kids were constantly storming out. I hate him. He gets on my nerves. He's always trying me. And really what, and what the difference really was, and it was hard to try to get the second teacher to understand was both of the men were very sarcastic. Children respond, can respond well with sarcasm and they can go back and forth with you. The difference was the one gentleman was a coach at the school. He had been there forever. He, I mean, like, and so he, without even trying, like he had a relationship with so many of those students, the things that he could say to those kids and they would be like, all right, it was okay because he said it. The other teacher could say the exact same thing and it would be like, like, I can't, you, you know what he said to me? And I'm like, but I heard the other teacher say the exact same thing to you when you laughed. But when this guy said it, and it just, it, it has everything to do with relationship. Um, and so, and, and I wish, I wish more people understood that. Now I'm going to shift for just a second because the next part about that is, is how do we, because the reality is that now it helps 100% to have those relationships. It really, really does. And they are so uber important. But the other, the, the, the other part of that, that seesaw um, in, in, in education period is finding that balance. You talked about that balance. And there are situations where children are, are definitely 100% being purposefully and maliciously disruptive and disrespectful. Um, and so how do we ensure um, and, and because of that, they are t- literally taking away like they're, I mean, the, the funny and people talk all the time about like, oh my God, Johnny didn't come to school today. We can actually learn. There are literally children, babies who, when they are gone, throw all like the entire classroom energy shifts. You know, it's a, it's a whole, and like, you can get so much more done because these one or two students are not there. And, and so my, my question is how do we ensure that we're not sending our problematic students into this pipeline they can't get out of, but at the same time, making sure that the other students in the classroom are able to enjoy a safe and, and trauma and trauma free learning experience. Like how, how do you balance that? That's really tough, but it all gets into the relationship between the administrator of the building, the teachers, the parents, and that student. And everybody has to be on the same page. <clears throat> so not only are you building relationships with the students, but you have to build relationships. The, the administrator sets the culture. And the teachers take that culture, as we used to call it, into the classroom. So if it's, it's a bad culture at the top, then those kids don't have a chance. The school has to be a comfortable place for a parent to enter. And when you're having these conversations, teachers and administrators need to be aware. Parents don't know what an IEP, a 504, they don't know that language. You have to speak to them in a parent language so they're comfortable. Because when you start talking IEPs and 504s, a lot of parents think you're talking over them. Um, If they don't understand, they won't ask question because they don't want to seem like they don't know what they're doing or not smart. So you have to provide the environment where a parent can come in and say, these are the issues I'm having. Build a relationship with the parent so you can go to the parent and say, this is what's happening without the parent being offended. Because if the first phone call you make to a parent 
It's about your kid did this and your kid's doing this. I don't want to talk to you anymore. But if you start that first one, two, three days of school and you go to that parent and you say, you know, you're welcome to call me anytime. I am glad your kid's in my class. I'm trying to build a relationship. If anything, if there's anything I should know, this is how I do things. I want your child to see themselves in my classroom. Now you have a comp opening for a conversation when things come up. Hey, this is Mr. Webb. You know, <clears throat> John's been disruptive today. He threw a pencil. Um, you know, he went to the principal's office. Nothing's going to happen. Is anything going on at home? Well, since I've already had that conversation, yeah, you know, I'm going through a divorce. But if I don't have that conversation, and that's the first time I'm calling, it's none of your damn business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it starts with that, where you can build those conversations. If it continues to happen, schools have to be the place that knows where the resources are and how to get them and make them available. And we miss that connection with local service social service agencies where they're invited to come into the school maybe one, two times a month to say, hey, these are the issues that we're facing. Do you know anything? These conversations aren't happening. It's just there are these bad kids and we don't know how to handle them. Yeah. So definitely what I what I heard from there is we need to make sure that our um we need to make sure that our parents are are our partners in 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 education because if you are a part if you have a partnership with the parents, a lot of times you can um you can head off some of that problematic behavior before it becomes extremely problematic. Um uh, anything now now let's say a parent has uh, is involved and they see their kid um being being kind of pigeonholed into that pipeline where they see that they're the the um the the, the infractions they feel are are being pushed on their child or harsher than probably what need to be what what can parents do or what should they say and how can, how can they combat now that they're aware we spend a lot of time today talking about the phenomenon they are now aware of the phenomenon how do they combat the phenomenon Three words, really. Be that parent. Be that parent. Have your knowledge and resources together. One of the recommendations that <clears throat> I had for a parent was that their child was being questioned in the principal's office with a law enforcement person present. That's not a protected conversation. As long as a law enforcement officer can hear, your child's in jeopardy of something. Your child's in jeopardy of being questioned about, even if it's a, a something as simple as a fight, your child is in jeopardy of something. Your child has an IEP. It's mandatory that, for me at least, that your child cannot be questioned without you present because there are authority figures intimidate that child into saying things that they may or may not be true. It's a simple thing to put in the IEP, but you have to be that parent and speak up. Mm -hmm. You have to be that parent to, to be at the board meetings or to watch the board, the replays of the board meetings and see what's going on. You have to be that parent that calls your teacher if you haven't heard from them. You have to be that parent. You know, we have Zoom and all kinds of stuff. You have to be at that parent-teacher conference. You have to, you have to, again, you have to be that parent as much as you know, maybe going on in some of our lives, you have to be that parent. If you don't know, find the answer. You just don't go in places blindly. Don't feel like um, 
there's a, ever a stupid question. If you don't understand something, speak up. If you, if you need representation, you can take somebody to a meeting with you. You can have an attorney present if you like. As much as it may not, you know, administrative school boards may not like it, you can do that. And if ultimately you have to be a stakeholder in your student's future and you have to be that parent as much as it may pain you, as much as it may pain other people. But in today's society, you have to be that parent. You have to be a hard charger. You have to be involved. You have to know what's going on locally. That's the most important election. If you don't vote anywhere else, your most important election is your school board election, because that's going to determine how your kids are disciplined, how, you, how your school is going to be for your child, and ultimately how their future is going to turn out. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And it's so funny when you said, uh, be that parent. Um, and I hate to admit this, but 100%, like there were parents, there were parents that I had and I would get, a kid would get sent and I'm like, you know whose child that is? Are you sure? Are you, before I call home, are you sure that you, are you ready for what's about to end? No, no, no. Like I, we had, you make sure you have your ducks in a row when you're that parent. And that is not a bad thing. That means that we know that your child, like if, if we're about to assign a consequence, we're going to make sure we exhausted every single resource before we made that phone call. We made sure we're making sure that we are on a, no stone unturned when dealing with, and every child should have that opportunity to, to, to make to, like to where we are making doubly, triply sure that we are assigning consequences fairly. Do you have any tips or resources for parents who are looking to be that parent or who are looking to be more active so that they can, um, you know, help disrupt this school to prison pipeline? Um, Just for everybody. I, I tell people to take the risk and you have to have those hard conversations with your child. You have to have those hard conversations with your teacher. You have to have the hard conversations with the administration. And consequently, those teachers need to build real relationships with the students as simple as what music do you like to listen to? Do you have a TikTok? And it may seem corny or whatever, but at least the student knows, you know what? This teacher is invested in me more than just math, more than just English. This teacher has an investment in me. So <clears throat> parent teacher administrator is first developing real relationships. The I is for intentional actions which you have to be intentional with your time, with your resources, not making assumptions. I think a lot of people in administrative positions think that if you're black or brown, or if you have a disability, that your college is already paid for. And a lot of times we don't know where scholarships are. We don't know what FAFSA is. We don't know. And we have to be intentional about the resources that we have, the availability of things as educators and let each child know that this is available to them, not assume that <clears throat> those things are available. Being intentional with your time. Hey, do you want to have lunch with me? Do you want to do the, you know, do you want to talk? Those things being intentional rather than, you know, doing paperwork or something. Be intentional with your time and your resources. And the S is safe spaces. And you create safe spaces by being intentional with your time and your resources and creating 
relationships. And you'll find the kids are going to start to come to you to have those hard conversations. They're not going to be afraid to go to dad and say, hey, I messed up. They're not going to be afraid to go to the teacher and say, hey, you know what? I'm struggling with this. So you create that safe space to have those hard conversations. And the, the K is keep asking questions. Each student is different. Never make assumptions. Keep asking questions if you don't know. Question the parent, question the teacher, question the administrator. Each child should be able to see themselves in your classroom. And each parent should go to their teacher and say, how can my child see, my, see themselves in your classroom? Each parent and teacher should be able to go to an administrator and a principal and say, how does my child, how can my child see themselves in this school? Every, everybody knows whether your parent, teacher, administrator, who the high flyers are, and everybody knows who the behaviors are. But do we really know everybody in between? Because that's where we make the difference. Because the ones in between can go two ways and we can pull the behaviors, the ones that are struggling, up into another category. But we can't afford to keep losing kids mm-hmm. in that middle category. And we keep losing them because we don't know them culturally. We don't know them, their likes and their dislikes. We don't know them on a personal level. And they get ignored. And just to end it, there are three things that each parent should look out for. And the one is invisibility. And that means, is my child being called on? Is my child being addressed when they walk by? Does my child walk into that school and there's somebody telling them good morning? A lot of times, black and brown and children with disabilities aren't visible in their school. So make sure when you want to talk about school, that people speak to you. Were you called on in class? You know, how many times were you called on in class this week? Um, Especially with AP classes a lot of times black brown and children with disabilities are ignored when it comes to signing up for ap classes they're not even offered the opportunity to so make sure that they're not visible in your school the second one is hyper visibility and that goes to the disciplinary process and that means black and brown youth and children with disabilities are being seen more in dress code violations, in behavior violations, in disruptiveness violations. And you want to look at those things. All those things are available online for your school to see the percentage of kids black and brown that are suspended compared to kids, their white counterparts. You can look that up online for each state. Nationally, it's about 4%. And I've been doing a little more research with black and brown girls because they seem to be the most disciplined and harshest disciplined group that we ever talk about. And we don't have time to talk about them today, but they are sometimes eight times more likely to be suspended in some states than in other states. And, And the national average is three times more likely, which is pathetic in itself, but in other states it's eight times. And how does that happen? So that hyper-visibility with dress codes and hair, you want to know those type of things. And the last one is the misrecognition. And what that means is a lot of the data that you may see, you have to be aware that a lot of that data is based on their white counterparts and not based on 
uh, black and brown youth and youth with disabilities. So you want to make sure when you look at data, that if the data seems too good to be true, it may be too good to be true. You want to make sure that black and brown and children with disabilities are represented in the data. Gotcha. Well, thank you, Leonard, for all of that. I think that you've given us a lot to think about. Um, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing um, with the School to Prison Pipeline and trying to break that and disrupt that. And thank you for being here. Teachers and administrators, build relationships. Parents, don't be afraid to be that parent. Thank you again to our guest, Leonard Webb, for being with us here today. And thank you for listening. Show notes and resources to the things we discussed are available on our website at www.justlikemepresents.com. Share this podcast with other parents and educators in your circle and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you liked what you heard today, leave us a review. Reviews help others discover our show and begin their woke journey. Have a great week and remember, if our children can see it, they can achieve it.